This episode of Post Reports is brought to you by AT&T Business. Get ready for the next leap in wireless technology with AT&T 5G. From the newsroom of The Washington Post. ¿Cómo está? Te habla Elisa Hernández del Washington Post. This is Cleve Lutzen with The Washington Post. It's Ellen Nakashima with The Washington Post. This is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Wednesday, March 4th. Today, Biden's surprising surge, the Federal Reserve response to the coronavirus, and why we're all doing a bad job of washing our hands. So who ended up winning, or quote-unquote winning, on Super Tuesday? Well, there's winning in two senses. There's winning in the sense of how many delegates were accrued. That is uh, to be determined to some extent. 14 states, each individual congressional district in all of those states, American Samoa, all of those contests will yield delegates based on how people did in each of those contests. And as such, the winner of each of those 180 plus contests is to be determined. But the real winner is Joe Biden. They don't call Super Tuesday for nothing. For those, for those who have been knocked down, counted out. Left behind. This is your campaign. Joe Biden uh, was the winner on Tuesday simply by virtue of the fact that he won more states, but particularly because he won more states when everyone a week ago figured his campaign had maybe a couple more days to go. Just a few days ago, the press and the pundits had declared the campaign dead. So I'm here to report. We are very much alive. We really saw a surge for Biden in South Carolina. He won South Carolina in convincing fashion and then really did a very good job. His campaign had a very good job of coalescing his past competitors around his candidacy. And the next thing you know, on Super Tuesday, he sees this huge national surge. He sees a surge in all these different states and ends up winning not only southern states, which is where Bernie Sanders did poorly in 2016, but wins states like Minnesota, Massachusetts, which a week ago, again, we're saying, well, it looks like Bernie Sanders can win those states and knock out Elizabeth Warren and Amy Klobuchar. Instead, it ends up being Biden. And then came South Carolina. They had something to say about it. And we're told, well, when he got to Super Tuesday, it'd be over. Well, it may be over for the other guy. So where and with whom did Biden do particularly well last night? The shortest way to answer that question is to say that Biden did well with black voters in particular in the South. There's nuance there. The nuance is that, for example, he did better in Texas uh, with white voters than did Bernie Sanders. Bernie Sanders did better with Latino voters in Texas, but Biden squeaked out a win in Texas. Biden also did well in Minnesota and Massachusetts, which obviously is a different demographic base than North Carolina uh, or Alabama. He showed strength with white Democrats that I think people may not have anticipated that he would do, which I think is important moving forward in the race. Sanders did well in states like Colorado. He did well in California. He did well, of course, in Vermont. But there's a really important asterisk that should be applied to Sanders' good showing in California. And it's going to get better over time. I'll point this out for uh, the simple reason that Bernie Sanders was able to bank a lot of early votes and absentee votes when he was doing much better in the race before this big Biden surge. And so a lot of the California vote was already done by you know a week ago, before last weekend, before the Biden surge. And that all went heavily to Bernie Sanders. We saw exit polling showed that the people who made up their minds in the last three days, Biden won them by about you know, 10, 15 points. Sanders won 
everyone who voted before that by a much wider margin. And it really just seems like Biden was a lot of people's acceptable second choice, that once the the field started to thin and people were looking around and saying, like, well, there is a candidate that I love, but there's also the candidate that I could survive seeing as the nominee. And for a lot of people, that was Biden in a way that I think is not true for Bernie Sanders. Really what we're talking about here is there are a lot of Democrats who really like Bernie Sanders' message. They like his policy ideas. They like the idea of Medicare for all. They like the idea of uh, college education being affordable or free or paid for by the government. They like they like these things that Bernie Sanders has put forward, but they really like the idea of Donald Trump losing more, right? And we see that in exit poll after exit poll. The thing which is driving people, the main motivation, their main concern is having Donald Trump lose. After Sanders emerged as the front runner, people started to be like, okay, well, what does this actually mean in the context of him taking on Trump? And it certainly is the case that there are arguments to be made that he can beat Donald Trump in November. Uh, but polling has shown that it probably is more likely that Joe Biden can beat Trump in in November. And that really spurred a lot of people to be like, OK, then this is the guy we should put forward. And a big part of the argument that Sanders had been making about how he can beat Trump in November is this idea of young people and that right. he is the candidate that can activate young people, people who would not otherwise vote. But tonight, I tell you with absolute confidence, we are going to win the Democratic nomination. We are going to defeat Trump. But what we saw on Tuesday night didn't necessarily support that. Because we are putting together an unprecedented, grassroots, multi-generational, multi-racial movement. What we've seen over the course of the primaries doesn't really support that. This was his electability pitch. You make me the nominee and I'm going to bring out these people who don't normally vote. And to be fair, that worked to some extent for Donald Trump. Donald Trump was the beneficiary in 2016 both of increased turnout from people who don't normally vote, who were very motivated by his campaign, and from Hillary Clinton, both having this perception that she was going to win and not being a particularly uh, uh, – she didn't have a lot of enthusiasm powering her candidacy. So it made sense that Sanders could make that case. The problem is that unlike Trump, his core base of support is a group that really doesn't vote very often. There are a lot of reasons why. I mean, we tend to talk about young people not voting and we tend to talk about it almost in a pejorative sense. But really what it is, is it's easier to vote if you don't move all the time because you don't have to re-register. It's easier to vote if you have lived in the same house because you own the house because you know where your polling place is. It's easier to vote if you're not working on election day, right? There are all these reasons that young people are disadvantaged and it is harder for them to vote, which makes it less likely for them to vote. But it also means that if you are a candidate who's relying on those young people, you're in trouble because you've got a big hill you have to climb even before you start trying to cobble together your coalition. I also just want to talk briefly about some of the other candidates. So former Mayor Mike Bloomberg did not do well. He is now out of the race, which happened very fast. Um, But I'm wondering about Elizabeth Warren. What I see happening is a lot of folks trying to turn voting into some complicated strategy. Um, she was having a rally in Detroit and Michigan of a place that did not vote on Tuesday night. And our colleague Annie Linsky, political reporter, um, she was with Warren and Warren's camp last night in Detroit. She was there to kind of look down the calendar and rally people for dates beyond Super Tuesday, you know, already. You know, pundits, friends, neighbors are all saying you have to second guess yourself on this. So here's my advice. Cast a vote from your heart. There is this incredible energy. She is talking to thousands of people when she makes these stops. But everybody that I spoke to last night said that they didn't believe she was going to be the nominee. 
And she basically talked about the the fact that even though it seems that Elizabeth Warren is not yet ready to throw the towel in, that there is this growing sense of dread that this is not going to be a winnable race for her. An aide from our campaign this morning told The Washington Post that they are reassessing the campaign right now. So it just there weren't any glimmers of hope really on the horizon for her and the achievements that she was sort of hoping to hang the campaign on and, and stay in the race just did not materialize last night. And it, it does put her in a difficult spot. But prediction has been a terrible business and the pundits have gotten it wrong over and over. I think they've been realistic all along that she had an uphill fight. I think that they recognize that Sanders' presence in the campaign made it very hard for her to move, uh, to get past to him, simply because, you know, he came into this thing with this core base of support that he built in 2016, something that Warren was not able to do. That said, yeah, I mean, I think they are right to assume, as are we all, that Elizabeth Warren is not going to have a path to the nomination. But I also feel like if I'm a if I'm an Elizabeth Warren supporter, if I am someone who, you know, pays some attention to politics, I'm going to look at what people were saying a week ago about Joe Biden. And who knows, right? You know, one of the lessons I tried to take from 2016 is all the things I think I know can very quickly be proven totally wrong. So I'm curious what you think the path forward is for Bernie Sanders. Because when we heard from our colleague Robert Costa, who was with Senator Sanders in Vermont on Tuesday. Behind the scenes, the Sanders campaign was taken aback by how quickly centrist Democrats were rallying around Biden. He said that even the campaign was surprised by how quickly Biden has become this, like, formidable frontrunner. They thought that those exits may come after Super Tuesday. For them to come before Super Tuesday put Sanders in a difficult position. The Sanders campaign is focused on March 10th, Michigan, Missouri, and other states where they feel like they can do well with younger white voters, younger African-American voters, liberal voters. Uh, They also are looking ahead to states like Wisconsin, Midwestern states, to make the case that Biden is not perfectly positioned in the industrial Midwest. So Michigan on March 10th, and then in a few weeks, Wisconsin will be major tests for Sanders. The key to the Democratic delegate contest is the fact that the Democrats, unlike the Republicans, allocate their delegates proportionally, right? So if you have a two-person race, what you need is you need to win big states by a big margin, which is what Biden did in South Carolina, for example. That math has always been tricky for Bernie Sanders because his strength tends to be that he does very well in states without many delegates. I'm also curious if, from what we've seen so far in the primary process, if anything in terms of either voter turnout or this kind of coalescing around the two poles of the Democratic Party, if that tells us anything about what November will look like. I think the results from Super Tuesday do tell us something about November, which is that the value proposition that Joe Biden brought into his candidacy this time around was that he would be able to reach out to voters that both voted Democratic in 2018 and handed Democrats the House, but also those voters who in 2016 made the difference in giving Donald Trump the presidency by virtue of his narrow wins in Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, and Michigan. Biden's entire proposition was, I can get done what we didn't, what we collectively didn't get done in 2016 by virtue of my base of appeal. And I think we saw him deliver on that 
on Tuesday in particular. We saw, you know, working class voters. We saw uh, whites without college degrees. There's a surge in, ter- in turnout uh, among whites without college degrees in Virginia, for example. They went overwhelmingly for Biden. We saw a broader surge in Democrats without degrees that, that end up the same way in Virginia. Joe Biden said, I can get these voters. And at least in the primary so far, he's been able to do so. There's a sense that last night was good and it kind of marked you know, a turning point or another turning point in the campaign. And our colleague Cleve Woodson, he was with Biden in Los Angeles on Super Tuesday, and he kind of spoke to that sentiment. And so a lot of the, you know, supporters that that I talked to over the last couple of days have, you know, fully expected that he would do well on Super Tuesday. They were extremely optimistic and, and, and didn't take it as a surprise. What they were trying to see was, okay, does this put him in the mix as a front runner? Does this put him even with Bernie Sanders? How will things shake out in the end? And make no mistake about it. This campaign that will send Donald Trump packing. This campaign is taking off. Join us. I would say that the outstanding question that I have after Super Tuesday is what kind of race we're going to see moving forward. Are we going to see a race such as we saw in 2004 when the Democratic Party, the Democratic voters very quickly tried to coalesce around the front runner, which at that point was John Kerry, simply because they wanted to move forward and get into a head-to-head battle against a Republican president who they vehemently disliked? Or is this going to be a race like 2008, in which you have two competitors who are running neck and neck from now through June contesting every single delegate that is up for grabs in an effort to try and either get just ahead of the other candidate or potentially reach the majority that is needed to clinch the nomination. I think what we saw in 2016 gives some sense that Bernie Sanders is probably not going to just simply step aside, that he will keep contested. I think it's likely that assuming that Biden's support doesn't once again collapse, that something doesn't happen uh, with his candidacy, that we'll probably see a pretty grueling fight moving forward. But that's the unanswered question. We've come to the view now that this that it is time for us to act in support of the economy. And once you reach, reach that decision, we decided to go ahead. So what did the Fed announce on Tuesday? The Fed did something highly unusual, and they announced an emergency interest rate cut of half a percentage point. What changed really was, I would say, over the course of the last couple of weeks, we've, we've seen a broader spread of the virus. We've seen it begin to uh, spread a bit here in the United States. But for us, what really matters, of course, is is not the epidemiology, but the risk to the economy. We haven't seen a cut this large or in an emergency, which means it's an unscheduled cut since the 2008 financial crisis. So that's a pretty big flashing red light. I'm Heather Long, the economics correspondent at The Washington Post. So why did they decide to do this? Well, lowering interest rates is, as the Fed chair said, it's not going to cure coronavirus. And as many economists have pointed out, it's not going to make people go and want to spend and buy a lot more if they just want to stay home in order to avoid coronavirus. But at the same time, there's a clear risk, a clear hit to the economy going on. There's a rising risk of recession. And if you're the world's top economic policymaker, Fed Chair Jerome Powell, you have to do something. And this is the biggest bazooka you've got is to lower interest rates. And he fired it yesterday. So the thinking is, is that 
if the outbreak continues and you have businesses that aren't able to do the type of business that they were previously able to do or factories shutting down or things not being sold, at least by doing this, the Fed can encourage people who still have the ability to grow business, to take out loans, to do more, essentially. Is that the thinking? So that's right. The way that lowering interest rates normally works is it makes it cheaper to get credit. So it's cheaper to get a mortgage now. It's cheaper to get an auto loan. It's cheaper to get a loan to go on a vacation or start a business. Of course, most people aren't thinking about that this week. So what they were really trying to do this week was to boost confidence. We just went through the worst week for the stock market and the most rapid loss since 2008. Anytime you compare to 2008, it feels scary. The big question right now for the U.S. economy is whether the supply shock turns into what we call a demand shock. So for weeks, we've all been watching these ships not come from China to the United States. That's created supply chain disruptions. But what really drives the U.S. economy is the American consumer. You, me, and all of our friends going out and spending money every day. And that's the real risk here. Does this coronavirus spread keep people literally at home and not spending? So the economy can be more resilient if it's just an issue of supply that is down. But once demand is also down, that's when things really go haywire. Exactly. You would think that the supply chains could pick up quickly once this passes. But sentiment... It's really hard to read, and sometimes once it goes down, it can take a long time to rebound. The Fed is trying to get ahead of that becoming a widespread issue. And is that going to work? Is this going to be a really effective measure to kind of counteract what's been happening with coronavirus. Perhaps the best line I heard about this was from an economist who told me that this Fed rate cut is akin to putting a Band-Aid on somebody's arm to cure a headache. So no, nobody expects this to do much, not just for coronavirus, but even for the broader economy. And if the Fed's main goal yesterday was to boost confidence, all you had to do is take one look at the stock market or the bond market all afternoon. (laughs) And uh, as we wrote in our story, Uh, The market went up about 15 minutes, and then it just slid the rest of the day. And we saw this huge warning sign in the bond market when the 10-year U.S. Treasury government bond yield fell below 1% for the first time ever. That's a lot of gobbledygook that basically means people are really nervous about the future of the economy. And they're not confident that this rate cut is going to make a difference. Well, not on its own. From an economic perspective, the big issue here is there's just a ton of uncertainty. And anytime you have uncertainty in the economy, the stock market usually goes down and people and business leaders start feeling nervous. And the reason they're feeling really nervous right now is obviously people are concerned about catching the coronavirus, but they're also concerned that the White House isn't acting quickly enough, they aren't taking this seriously enough, and that they are a little bit unsteady right now in their leadership. And what could help? I think people are looking and saying, why aren't we doing what South Korea did, where there was widespread testing immediately, a lot of government officials on the ground in areas that were impacted, or people are looking at places like Hong Kong, where the government immediately started giving out basically checks to low-income people and and workers that they were afraid of losing their paychecks to try to encourage them to stay home and give them a little bit of a cushion to make it through the next few weeks. We saw something similar. Italy immediately unveiled 
some tax credits for businesses, particularly small businesses that were going to be hit. So again, beyond just trying to contain the health crisis, other governments around the world have been much faster to try to fire some of their federal fiscal measures, if you will, to also help the economy and help individuals. So what does this mean for the future? Because if the Federal Reserve made this huge move, this kind of last-ditch effort to save the economy, but people are still not really confident that it's going to make that much of a difference, then is it inevitable that we basically are sliding into a recession because of coronavirus? It's not inevitable, but the probability is certainly up. As a reporter, it's not fun to hear somebody say on the phone that it's almost a coin toss probability of whether we see a global recession and possibly a U.S. recession. That's not a good feeling. That said, think about how this could play out. There's really kind of two scenarios. You know, one is... We do get more widespread testing. The federal government really steps in. We are able to slow the spread of coronavirus, feel like we've got more of a handle on it. And people continue to go about their daily lives. Looking around in the D.C. area, I still see people at restaurants. I still see people going out and about and living their daily lives. I've been asking all of my Lyft and Uber drivers in recent days. I've had about one out of 10 who said he might stop driving if coronavirus comes to D.C. In, in a major way. you know, But he hasn't stopped driving yet. So again, I think people are kind of on the precipice of wanting to maybe pull back, but they haven't yet. And so we can still prevent a recession. And the best case and most likely scenario is we see some sort of, people have been calling a V-shape. So a really, really sharp downturn and then a really, really sharp recovery. I think it's going to be more like a U. <laughs> so we're going to go down. We might stay down maybe a couple of weeks and then we come back up. So I think that That's what the Fed is hoping for, and certainly the White House would like to see. But the next two weeks are going to be critical. And keep an eye. We've got a jobs report coming out Friday. It will give us a good read on February. And in two weeks, the Federal Reserve meets again. Do they take another action then? That will be a pretty good clue about the pulse of the economy. Heather Long covers the economy for The Post. This episode of Post Reports is brought to you by AT&T Business. Where are we right now? We are in a bathroom at the Washington Post D.C. offices. Because of the spread of coronavirus, there has been this huge push for the most basic public health measure. Washing your hands. But all this talk about hand washing actually begs a pretty big question. Do people actually know how to wash their hands? It's a really great question, do people know how to wash their hands? We are taught in nursery school and kindergarten how to wash our hands before eating or before after we play outside. I think we tend to get comfortable and we rush through the process as uh, adults. That's Erin Sorrell. She's a virologist at Georgetown. And she came by our office to teach me all the things that I'm doing wrong when I wash my hands. So step number one, I'm here in front of the sink. Do I start with the water or do I start with the soap? It's a great question. Important to start with the water. Get your hands wet so that you can create an effective lather once you add the soap. So just make sure your hands are completely wet. In addition to starting with water before soap, Erin says it's also important to remember every part of your hands. Not just your palms, but also the back of your hands and underneath your fingernails. 
and then make sure that you interlock your fingers so that you're getting the surfaces, uh, consider kind of a 360 coverage of your fingers. So right between my fingers, exactly. like right up to the webbing. Exactly. And also don't forget your thumbs. And it turns out that the way you rinse your hands is critical to the whole process. And then when you're ready to rinse, important to, to think about is rinsing your wrist to your fingertips. The idea just being that the water would run off your hands. So you're getting this, the soap off from wrist to fingertip. It's also important to make sure that you're getting your hands completely dry. And then to use paper towel to make sure that you're not touching the door on your way out. And then you have the paper towel and then you can ball it up and then do the like basketball shot. Exactly. Into the trash yeah. as you're going out. Two-pointer or three-pointer depending on your preference. Right. Just bend the knees. <laughs> but maybe the most important part of this whole process is washing your hands for long enough. Because it's supposed to be a full 20 seconds. And I don't think that people have reckoned with how long 20 seconds actually is. It is exactly this long. That is how long you are supposed to be washing your hands. Every single time. Erin Sorrell is an assistant professor at Georgetown University in the Department of Microbiology and Immunology. That's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. If you still have questions about the coronavirus, check out The Post's newsletter about the outbreak. It features our latest reporting, frequently asked questions, and maps showing the areas that are currently affected. And all the reporting featured in the newsletter is free to access, whether or not you're a Post subscriber. To sign up, go to WashingtonPost.com slash virus newsletter. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post. This episode of Post Reports is brought to you by AT&T Business. Get ready for the next leap in wireless technology with AT&T 5G.